Well, good morning. My name is Rick. If you don't know me, I show my face up here once a year. Well, what better topic to spend a summer on this summer than on the topic of grace? Without a God of grace, without his extending that grace to us, we'd be in serious trouble, wouldn't we? Grace is what rescues us from our doom, and that alone should lighten up our summer, right? That brings the sun out. Well, we've been looking at grace from many different vantage points, saving grace, grace that relieves the guilt of our sin, grace that sustains us, that heals us, that liberates us, that restores us. God's grace is a marvelous, powerful gift. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at this same theme, the, the theme of grace, from the concept of growing in grace. How do we grow in grace? And for that, we are going to turn to Second Peter. At the very end of this little book, if you've turned to Second Peter, go to the very last verse in the third chapter. The very last verse says this, it says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Now read between the lines. What is Peter saying here? I think he's saying that grace is not static. It's not li- it is living. It is growing. And as we will discover today, all of us have a part in whether this grace growth will appear in each of our lives. Well, let's shoot back all the way to the beginning of Second Peter. We're going back to chapter 1. It's kind of where we'll camp today. Peter starts his letter with a familiar greeting. It's a greeting that is very similar to what many of the letters in the New Testament give us when he says this. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's praying here that grace and peace would grow, that they would get bigger. Grace and peace in your lives, he's saying, are not as big as they could be or should be. So Peter is praying that they multiply. It's the same thing he's saying at the end of the book. Grow in grace. Verse 3 then goes on in chapter 1, and Peter tells us something here that really should rock us to our core. He says this, God's divine nature has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, maybe you've seen these Capital One commercials. They were showing a few months back, sometime around the Super Bowl, I think, with Samuel L. Jackson. The one where he says, everything, what does that mean? And then he proceeds to list just about every kind of credit card transaction known to man and says, well, that is what everything should mean. Well, what does everything mean when Peter says it? He means that God is the supplier of all we need in order to live a life the way God designed it. That's what everything should mean. Verse 4, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Thanks be to God that he has rescued us from our doom. But he doesn't stop there. 
He gives us gifts and he gives us resources so that we can be successful in this Christian life. And as he says at the end of the letter, so that we can grow in grace. Well, we move along in chapter 1, and Peter now gets specific, and this is really where we're going to hang out. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, he lists eight virtues that enable us to grow in grace. These virtues are a gift from God, but it's not that simple. We have a part in this deal, too. Peter actually begins his list with a preface. He says, applying all diligence. That means that the gifts, although they are certainly free, they are not handouts. They're not entitlements. We must take the gift wrapping off. We must assemble the gifts. We must use these gifts diligently. And if we do, we grow in grace. So, one pastor taught from this passage, and he called the sermon Christian, grow up. The subtitle in my study Bible calls this the growth of faith section. So what I want to do is to open up each of these eight virtue gifts one by one. Now we could spend a week each on these eight virtues, so I'm going to ask you to strap on your seatbelt here because we're going to move really fast. We're going to do a rapid flyby. Let's read the verses first, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply goodness, in your goodness knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. Eight virtues. Notice something very important here. These virtues are additive. To your faith, Peter says, supply goodness. The word supply means choreograph. It means plan it out. Each of these virtues is a feeder to the next one and works in harmony with the one before it and the one after it. For example, self-control. It needs knowledge to precede it in order to know what to control. And it needs perseverance to follow it in order to maintain consistency. The bottom line here is that you can't pick one and just pursue that. It's a lot of work. All are necessary. So go to your outline. The first virtue gift that we'll cover then is faith. Faith. Faith is some kind of firm conviction. It's a belief in something. Here, it is the foundation upon which all of the other virtues are built. This faith starts with faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says that even this faith is a gift given by God. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this, the grace and the faith, are not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. This faith, then, for the Christian is confidence that God will keep his promises and confidence in the things that we cannot see. 
Hebrews 11.1, it's a very common verse. It's the very definition of faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. The writer here isn't describing some kind of blind faith, which is believing something without any evidence. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul dares his readers to look at the evidence to either prove or disprove the resurrection. And he calls himself and others fools if the resurrection is not true. He's laying himself out there. The Old Testament is rife with details of the coming Messiah. It sets itself up for certain failure if these claims don't play out. But they do. So our faith is built on fact. It's built on evidence. And then it gives us the confidence to believe in biblical truth that we not necessarily can see. Now, when we're saved, our faith is small, right? But God gives us a promise right out of the chute. In Philippians 1, verse 6, he says this, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Through life's joys and trials, we will see how God works in our lives. Through his word, we see fulfilled prophecy. We see other promises that are kept. But I think more importantly, we see his personal promises made to us that he's kept. And we see his comfort and his guidance that he's given. And so our faith grows. So faith that's the foundational virtue. Next, to faith, we add goodness. Some translations call this excellence. As our faith grows and strengthens, our desire for excellence, our desire to do good in our service to God increases. James 2.26 tells us that common verse says, faith without works is dead. And although Excellence and good works are not required for salvation, right? They are required once we are saved and, in fact, validate our salvation to others. Our newfound faith is not real faith if good works don't follow. Well, goodness is simply knowing the right thing to do and doing it. God builds into us the conscience of every human being who ever lived a basic understanding of right and wrong. He gives us what people call general revelation, which is available, it's obvious to everybody who's ever lived. For example, it's obvious that there is a creator, amen? amen. It's obvious and it's inbuilt that we are not to hurt each other. However, general revelation is insufficient, and it's only meant to expose our need for more. And that's where the Bible steps in, and it gives the world this gift of what is called specific revelation, more specific instructions on right and wrong, and of course, the rescue plan for our salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, more than just goodness, more than just knowing the, and doing the right thing. I think this virtue implies excellence again, and it applies to the ministries we're involved in, whether that's here at Canyon Hills 
or out in the community or out in the world. So let me ask you this, at work, do you desire to do the best job possible? I am sure you do. There's monetary rewards. There's possible promotions, right, if you do. But what about your ministry here at Canyon Hills? Is it sometimes we're a little more tolerant of good enough when we do ministry here? Listen to Paul as he talks about his ministry in Philippians chapter 3. One thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling us that he has not perfected his ministry. He's not accomplished all God has for him to do. He knows his service to God can always be better. It can always be more excellent. Even though he's accomplished much for God and maybe accomplished more for God than anyone who's ever lived, he will set all that aside and look forward to the work that God has next for him, which he will do with all excellence. He never assumes he has reached the pinnacle of ministry excellence. There's always room for improvement. And so he sets his eyes on the future. To faith and goodness, then, Peter adds knowledge. And here, actually, is where a little understanding of the Greek is important. Interestingly, if you go back two verses to verse 3, the word knowledge is also used. But it's a different Greek word. In verse 3, the word for knowledge is the word epignosis, which is a word that means intimacy, knowing God intimately. That is our ultimate goal. But here in verse 5, he uses a different word. He uses the word gnosis. He lops off the epi from the front of it, and it now means an intellectual knowledge. It means knowing about God. So we are to add to faith and goodness this gnosis, which is information about Jesus Christ, information about the gospel, that enables us to epignosis, to know intimately Christ and God better. So where do we find this gnosis about God, about Jesus Christ? We find it in the Bible, don't we? Hebrews chapter 5 is an interesting little section of Scripture. The reader is kind of getting into the face, or the writer is kind of getting into the face of the reader. Listen to what he says here. He says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish between evil and good. Some have called this the knowledge search mechanism. It includes a heart that longs and searches for knowledge, but it also includes a mind that values knowledge more than gold. Well, why do we want this knowledge, this gnosis? Well, two reasons. First of all, we've talked about it already. The more gnosis we have, the more epignosis we are with Christ, the more intimate we become with Christ. 
But secondly, we are able then with this knowledge to build others up in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ ourselves. We become servants to others. So that's knowledge. To faith, goodness, and knowledge, then we add self-control. What good is knowledge if we don't have the discipline to use it right? Knowledge tells us the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Self-control is the discipline to do the right thing. Well, what is the opposite of self-control? Simply, I think it's just giving in to temptation. And this can run the gamut. It can be anything from sexual temptations of all sorts to gossip, to murder, to slander, to even telling a little white lie. I think the tongue is so often at the heart of the matter. James tells us that if you don't keep a tight ring on your tongue, your religion is worthless. Paul tells us to only speak words with which build others up. No critical words. This isn't easy. God recognizes that. I love this verse in Proverbs 16.32. It says this. It says it's easier to capture a city than to control the spirit or control the tongue. That's how hard it is. But God doesn't always ask us to do easy things, does he? Remember the verse we read before, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the point. You don't have to conquer lack of self-control on your own. In fact, and I can tell you this from experience, if you try it that way, you'll fail. Use God. That sounds funny, but use God. He will work with you to perfect you. That's a promise. But we need to do our part. Remember the preface that Peter gave us before the list. Applying all diligence. This is a team effort with God and us. So let's move on to the fifth virtue. The fifth virtue is perseverance. The word here means cheerful, cheerful endurance. It's not some passive virtue. It's not the picture of a ship that sees a storm off in the distance and anchors to avoid it. It's a picture of a ship that presses on to its destination. Perseverance is active. It's on the offensive. It takes perseverance to be disciplined and in self-control. Paul promises in Romans that perseverance will result in character building, which will result in generating hope. James promises that perseverance under trial will build endurance. Endurance for what? Well, probably endurance for the next trial, which is sure to come. So where do we look for perseverance? Just kind of a a short list, practical steps. It's not on your outline. Where do we look for perseverance? First of all, as always, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who endured and persevered through hostility of the worst kind. We must remember always what Jesus went through. Secondly, we look to the Old Testament prophets 
who endured mocking from their own people, yet remained faithful and still delivered the message that God had for them to deliver. Thirdly, we look for perseverance in each other. We encourage each other, especially those who might be enduring trials that maybe we have endured in the past and have experience with. We look to a positive attitude. We remember past trials. We remember how God was faithful then, and we remember how we grew through those in the past. And then finally, we look to the future. We remember the whole story. What happens at the end? God wins. Whose side are we on? We're on the winning side. So that helps us persevere. Then to faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, we add godliness. The word godliness means to worship well. It means to be very devout. One old saint from long ago said this, it's that piety which characterized by a Godward attitude doest that which is pleasing to God. Simply, it's a desire to make God happy with our choices and with our actions. And here's where attitudes and motivations are key. Is our attitude Godward or is it manward? Jesus hits us between the eyes when he says this in Matthew. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. And this doesn't just apply to helping the poor or giving and offering. It applies to all aspects of life. Who do we wish to please? Is it God or is it man? Well, how is godliness developed? Well, just as we take care of the physical body, we also take care of the spiritual body. And I think we do this in two ways. First of all, we exercise. We read and apply the principles we find in God's Word with all diligence. We use the abilities and gifts that God has given to us to serve other people. And we set an example of behavior that others can emulate. So we exercise. The second thing we do is we abstain. We stay away from that which is ungodly. Disputes, materialism, critical words that tear others down, and so forth. Okay, on to virtue number seven. We have two more. To the first six, we add brotherly kindness. The first six virtues are either upward towards God, or they are inward, revealing hard attitudes. These last two are largely outward and how we serve others. You can see the progression, can't you? You start with those that are Godward attitudes, those that are Godward virtues. We go to inward virtues, ultimately resulting in how we interact and serve others. The Greek word for brotherly kindness here is phileo. You might have heard it before. It's where the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, gets its name. Peter here is talking about a sense of family. In John 13, Jesus uses this word when he says to love one another. He's directing his command to Christians to be a family and to love, uh, love each other as witnesses to the world. 
This kind of love that we should show from the church should sharply contrast what is dominate, a world that is dominated by hate and really just plain meanness. Crucial elements of brotherly kindness are found in Ephesians, where Paul calls us to bear with one another. And in Philippians, where I think is really the theme of this little book, is Paul's focus on unity, coming together as a family, but doing that with a personal and individual attitude of humility. Because that kind of humility will create unity in the body. So in practice, another short list. How do we show this kind of brotherly kindness? First we do, as Paul said he did in Philippians chapter 1, I thank God every time I remember you. Paul chooses to remember the positives, all the good times he's had with this little church. He's off in prison somewhere, and he's writing them a letter and telling them how much affection he has for them. He's remembering the good times. Secondly, we show brotherly kindness by hanging out with each other, by spending time with each other, by doing ministry together. Maybe it's Long Beach to serve the homeless. Maybe it's down to Juarez. Maybe it's hanging out in C groups. Maybe it's just getting together as three or four people and going out to dinner. Just hang out and spend some time with each other. And then thirdly, spend time, so important, praying for one another. Pray for their physical well-being. I think we do really good at that. I know I do. What I don't do is I don't take those prayers and take it to the next step. Pray for their effectiveness in ministry. Pray for their spiritual growth. Pray for their maturity in Christ. And maybe even if there's a personality clash that you know of within the family, pray for an opportunity to serve with them. Okay, finally we come to the eighth and the final virtue. We've had faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness. The final one is, of course, love. Now, in the New Testament, there's at least four Greek words for love. Peter uses two of them in this list. He's already used phileo, right? Here he uses the ultimate God kind of love. That's agape love. It is a love that seeks the highest good of another person. It's the kind of love Jesus calls us to use in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, agape your enemies. This agape love doesn't depend on being loved back. Neither is it some kind of uncontrolled reaction of emotion. It's an exercise of the will. When Paul gives us examples of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he uses verbs to describe them. Patient, not bragging, bears all things, and so forth. It's a love that is active and it's vibrant. Ephesians says to walk in love. Colossians says be unified in love. Galatians says serve in love. There are tons of others throughout the New Testament. Well, why is agape love last on the list? Well, because as Paul says, the greatest of all virtues is love. Above all things, he says, put on love, be clothed with love. 
Love is the pinnacle of these eight virtues. It all starts with faith. Faith is a necessary starting point. But these virtues are then bookended by an active love toward God and toward others. So there you have it, lightning speed. Those are the eight virtue gifts that God gives us. The result, we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, which word for knowledge does he use here? He uses that epignosis word. It's the intimate knowledge of Christ. We grow closer to him and more intimate to him as a friend and as our Lord. But what is grace? Grace is favor. It's favor that we receive for something that we didn't either deserve or we didn't earn. As a Christian, the biggest gift of grace that we receive is, of course, our rescue. The salvation we receive because of Christ, who died willingly to give us this gift of life, even though we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. Well, that grace has been given to us in full. So why is Peter saying we can grow in grace? How can we get more of something that is already fully given? Well, when you look at the eight virtue gifts that Peter lists, I think you get the answer. And my friends, this becomes the key point of today's message. By appropriating these eight virtues, by receiving the gifts God gives us, then unwrapping and assembling and using these gifts with all diligence, we are equipped to extend grace to others. Once again, it's not so much a getting thing here. It's a giving thing. Peter is not so much talking about the grace we have received from God as marvelous and wonderful and undeserved that that is. He's talking about the God kind of grace that we must in turn extend to others. So I ask you this, who is there in your life that you can extend a special measure of grace to? the kind of grace that God has shown to you, accepting others, forgiving others, loving them, especially when they are unlovable in your mind, recognizing and meeting needs, holding a brother or sister accountable, and lovingly correcting them when it's needed. Do they always deserve it? Well, to us they don't unfortunately, but neither did we when Jesus went to the cross. These virtue gifts are characteristics of God, which he imparts as gifts to us. God is a giving God. He loves to give us gifts. And in these virtue gifts, he gifts us with characteristics, which we must apply with all diligence to transform us into his likeness. What is God like? He's a God full of grace, which he gives to us undeserved. So when he gives us these virtue gifts, what does he expect of us? He expects us to apply them with diligence so that we, like him, can be people that give grace to others. 
I believe these virtue gifts and the grace that we extend to others really feed off each other. In other words, we don't have to perfect these virtue gifts before we can start extending grace to others. If we thought that, we would never get there because we'll never perfect them. So with God's help, we apply diligence toward the virtue gifts at the same time extending the kind of grace God gives us towards others. Here's how I think it works. The more we perfect the virtue gifts, the more grace we extend to others. And then the more grace we extend to others, the more we perfect these virtue gifts. They work hand in hand. It's one of the marvels of the Christian life. So can you do this? I think you can. Can you leave church today with a renewed intent to unwrap and assemble the virtue gifts given by God? Can you leave this place with a renewed intent to extend God-like grace to others as He has extended to you, especially when it's hard to do? This, my friends, is life lived to its fullest. You're now equipped. So grow in grace by extending that God-given grace to others. Let's pray. Father, you have given us incredible gifts, chief of which is the gift of our salvation through the death of your Son. For that we are eternally grateful and joyful and want to tell others about it. But that's not the only gift you give us. You give us many, many, many other gifts. You're like a great boss who promotes us into a position and then gives us what we need to succeed in that position. Lord, these gifts are a treasure for us. May we recognize these gifts, see them in Scripture, unwrap them, assemble them, put them together, and use them diligently so that we can serve others. Lord, is it a tremendous privilege to be able to do that. Help us each to go from this place today with some opportunity that you are presenting to us that might be hard for us to extend grace to somebody that's just really hard to extend grace to. May we look for those opportunities and act on them. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.